Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a passage of the Bible, we read it together and we get the different perspectives from three different people. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Hi. As always, I've got with me, I've got Morgan Carter, I've got Lachlan Miller, and I've got myself, Joshua Lee. How are you going, everyone? Well. 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 I, in the last few days, I got to see both my family and Em's family and have a good time. And then just yesterday, I spent the entire afternoon just wrapping my head around the minor prophets because I'm going to be doing a Bible study series on that at church. And sometimes it blows my mind that that is my job. That mm. I just get to spend an afternoon trying to understand what is going on in the Bible, and that's a work day. Yeah, I mean, you get to do it for, for your actual job. You yeah, get to do it yeah. for years. And also on the podcast. Yeah, it's great. It's so, your entire life. I'm doing really well, Josh. I'm good. Morgan, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I've got my friend staying with her little daughter at the moment, and we've got our one of our best friend's weddings next weekend. So being chaotic at the moment, just getting things done, but exciting time. Mm-hmm. Keeping me on my feet. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. That's nice to look forward to. What about you, Josh? Good, yeah. No, it's it's been well. It's been a it's been a good week with different different things coming up. But looking forward to sort of the week coming up because I've gone going down to Canberra for mm. a um, working job, and I always like to uh, sort of the 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 jobs where you get to travel. It's almost like a little bit of a of a working holiday, though. You are working, so if it, you know you get swamped with that sort of work, then. It doesn't. It's not really a holiday, but it's nice to sort of to, to travel, especially when we've just been stuck in in the one place. It's nice to travel, so I'm looking forward to going down to Canberra. Hopefully, it'll be a, a bit cooler down down that way, um, and escape the the Sydney Sydney heat. But yeah, no, I'm doing I'm doing well. Nice, Morgan. Which chapters are we doing today? So today we're reading from halfway through chapter six to the end of chapter nine in Genesis. Today's passage comes from the book of Genesis, starting in the second half of chapter 6 until the end of chapter 9. These chapters focus on the story of a worldwide flood and how Noah and his immediate family are rescued from this flood by the construction of an ark. While the flood cleanses the world of human wickedness, the ending of the story shows that human nature is still corrupt and directed towards evil. So to briefly recap last episode... We had Cain and Abel, we had the first murder, and then we just saw the slow spiralling descent of mankind into sinfulness. And we ended halfway through chapter 6 with God regretting that he had made mankind because of how evil and violent they had become on the earth. And then we Mm. said that God, in our next episode, was going to do some type of solution to Mm. this problem. And here we are today with the story of Noah and the flood. So between last episode finishing that and sitting on that thought, I was thinking all week, why were people created like that? If he had all the power to create these great divine people, why didn't he create them not to turn evil? Well, he gave us free will. And if if, if God was to sort of take away that free will, then we were sort of just become like robots, certain him, him just sort of puppeting us around. And so my my sort of answer to that would be, well, with, with free will, we have the choice to sin or not sin. And as a result, we decided to sin. We may have been slightly manipulated in the process, but it was still our choice choice to do it. So I think God could just take take away it all, but then that takes away sort of our free will, our choice choice to do it. So I think it probably stems around that. It was our choice to sin and, it's our cho- and it was their choice to sort of become corrupt and sort of go down this 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 path sounds like a great answer to me josh Mm. (laughs) any any thoughts yeah i just think like he was so sure on what he wanted and the directions and what everything was really ordered and like to perfection Mm. i just thought if it's gone so bad and so evil why was that allowed to happen but yeah that makes sense saying it like that yeah and this would have i think this would have broken god's heart like this Mm. would have been devastating to sort of witness especially when you're like when you're saying morgan about you know this was like you know his plan his creation everything wanting to be sort of quote-unquote perfect and 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 divine like you said and you know it'd be like your own kids going down a path that you don't want them to to do it break your heart but like like a parent you almost have to either trust them or trust that they'll come back around to you or, or whatever that dynamic might look like. Or intervene. Or, or, or intervene in this this case. It's quite a drastic thing that's that's sort of about to happen, uh, which sort of, you know, tells us how dire the situation was. Mm. 
yeah, to sort of regret the decision and then go, okay, we're going to wipe out everyone except for one family and we're going to start over. It's interesting that it's wipe out everyone except for one family. It, God, as we saw before, created humans. So he could just wipe everyone out and sort of restart the process again. But he's sort of seen this righteous man, this person that's been walking with with God, has this fellowship with God. Mm. So he sort of chooses Noah to sort of lead the next stage of um, humans. Yeah, because it's significant that Noah was a righteous man who was blameless before God. Now, this doesn't necessarily convey the sense of being perfect, but Mm. it does mean that he was walking faithfully with Yahweh, like God was his God. And mm. he pursued that relationship. And that is not something God is willing to throw away. So no, he was wanting to save Noah yeah. for and the great reset. Mm. And it's sort of like that reward of like, you know, rewarding him <laughs> with, mm. with not dying. <laughs> <laughs> so it'd probably be remiss to, to sort of ask if there have been various movies that have come out <laughs> on, on this story. Mm-hmm. One famous one, which has tried to dramatically recreate the, the story, um, if, if, if we've all sort of seen the movie Noah. But then there are other other ones where they've where they've taken the story and they've either put a bit of a spin on it. Uh, what is, it's not, is it Bruce Almighty or is it... Um, Evan Almighty. Evan, Al- yeah. Evan Almighty has, has taken that story and either put it in this modern context or... or um, I think even one of the Ice Age movies... Had a Noah's Ark oh, storyline. Mm. I don't remember. Ice Age: I don't The remember. Meltdown was definitely Noah's Ark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would make sense with the ice caps melting and everything. Yeah. Before we sort of you know go further into the passage, is there any thoughts and comments on how this story has been depicted in media? I didn't realise, like, I think from the kids' Bible that I always talk about and Sunday school and just hearing about the story, I didn't realise how it was such a horrible thing that was happening. I thought it was just like a wholesome, like getting on a boat, like this hope, like saving people and animals and things. Like it was like a nice happy story. I didn't realise that they were actually escaping something and had to survive. I didn't realise how like sad and like horrible it was. Yes, story of judgement. Yeah, and I think a lot of the times we we tend to think that everything is sort of go lucky and happy um, with the Bible, which because because naturally there is there is hope out of it, right? We're not we're not sort of thinking that everything is dire. We actually come out of like reading the Bible with this sort of hope and this salvation mm. um, from it. So we should feel sort of like happy with it. But then th- there's that tendency, especially being like if if you've been brought up with Sunday school and everything, that things are a little bit darker, things are a bit more either dire or a bit more gross and yuck, and that things probably were not as, as you said, Morgan, sort of happy as they may have seen. And, yeah, this is an escape story as well, mm-hmm. um, this, this, this story here. And it's something that sort of media has sort of portrayed either well or not 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 well is sort of back to my point of like the thought the thoughts on it whatever you may whatever the thoughts may think of something like Noah it's a bit a bit more of a controversial story within the Christian Christian circles mm-hmm. as dramatic as it is one of the things I think it does do well is showing how dire the situation was and the reasoning for the flood the flood to happen now how it plays out various rock monsters <laughs> um, various Very Noah's different. Noah's attitude on the boat probably will have lots of problems with that mm-hmm. um, and how it is, but it's. I find it always interesting to to see how media has portrayed these uh, these things because it's always nice to see stories from the Bible come come to life because it's not part of mainstream media. Mm. Um, it's something that's not necessarily so common, so it's always interesting to see uh, what they do with it. But yeah. When different different people's interpretations come into play, then that's when we can have issues with it. So I think probably what's important is probably to go, all right, if you've watched any of the movies, take those movies with a grain of salt as we go through this because mm-hmm. it's not either it's not an accurate representation or we need to sort of put our uh, either our biases or what our preconceived notions by like watching media aside as we as we go into it. I had a question where it says everything on earth will perish, but then at the bottom it says to keep them alive. Like why was it two of every animal? And how did, like, how do you know those animals weren't going to kill each other? Because, like, you wouldn't put a little fluffy bunny in with a giant <laughs> aggressive, I don't know, what's an aggressive animal? Like a lion or tiger or something like that. Yeah, like why did he do that and how did he know that they weren't going to kill each other? Well, if you go back to 
the famous movie Noah with Russell Crowe, uh, God puts all the animals into a deep slumber so that they just sleep on the ark. I don't think we're actually told. I think we're just meant to know that the Lord is Lord over animals as well. And so his idea was two of every animal so that life will continue after I destroy the world. Um, But also, interestingly, seven of all the clean animals, because clean animals are animals Mm. that a Jewish person was allowed to eat and was commanded to sacrifice. So you needed more of those animals around. Mm. So it wasn't just two by two. It's a lot to fit on one boat. It is. When you then include Mm. food, unless you... Unless we mm. assume God sustained the animals in a different way, you also need to fit all the food in. But it is a very big boat. It is. Like, if we look at the dimensions, it's 137 metres long, it's 23 metres wide, and it's 14 metres high. Mm. Now, I looked up some other boats or ships from different time periods to see what the comparison was, and so kind of... Egypt, at the height of its power, their biggest ships were probably 50 metres long. Um, in Roman times, their largest vessel that was ever known was probably about 55 metres long, so not much longer than the ancient Egyptians. Mm. The United States built the largest wooden boat ever built, and it was 100 metres long, and yet here we have Noah's Ark at 137 metres long. Mm. Like, it's, it's longer than any wooden boat ever made, and so it can fit everything in it. Mm. But it's just insane. How accurate, like, it was the translations. Did Do we think that the dimensions were, were like, properly written down or through sort of our, our knowledge of sort of the past, um, through history, is the translations going, it would have it been like this or have we just seen that number in whatever it was written, like, before and going, okay, that's this number translate to to this number in English, if that makes sense. There's a few translation things in this story that are worth getting into in a moment. But when it comes to the numbers where we have consistency across all of the ancient manuscripts that these are the numbers recorded. And so Mm. we do believe that these are the numbers given. Now, we then have to figure out what to do with that. Someone like John Walton will argue that this is obvious hyperbole and even the ancient audience would have realised that. Like, that's why the numbers are so big. It's because they're meant to recognise it as exaggeration. Hmm. Early Christian theologian Augustine argued that these were the dimensions of a giant coffin and then did some teaching along those lines. Interesting. Um, However we land on these issues, which we'll probably dive in at the very end, so stay tuned about what we think is actually going on with Noah's flood, um, I do think we can trust that these are the measurements that were recorded in Genesis. Hmm. You would think that almost it's it's one, it's just Noah and his sons building this. Yes, you would assume so. Which is quite a feat for four people if it was only four people. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the um, Evan Almighty movie, we have uh, all the animals that help build the mm. ark as well. We do. But then... But I also don't, I always imagined this story as it was only Noah and his family mm. around. And mm. we don't, but we, it, it, which sort of like rightly so, we don't actually get given that there were any, anyone else there. But there would have been other other people there because um, sort of maybe looking on and how that sort of would have worked. And I could immediately just imagine that other people sort of watching on would have wanted to go on said boat. Well, what would one would have thought he was crazy to build this giant yes. boat, but then two, as the, as the flood was happening, would have wanted to go onto the boat, which is where we sort of then get some imagery from the movie um, <laughs> from. But yeah, it's just interesting how I've always, I've always thought of this, so this story as Noah and his family was alone and this all happened. But there would have been other people around because God's sort of wiping the slate clean. Well, yeah, there's a whole society around that God is judging. Mm. But it would surprise me if Noah employed or paid this huge workforce but then didn't get on the boat. No, wouldn't be a good boss. (laughs) No, (laughs) not at all. And so I agree. I think as we read the story, we're meant to see it as Noah and his family building this ark with a fair bit of God involvement. We also don't know how long it took them to build it. I don't think that's explicitly said in the text. No. No, and, and numbers as we as we'll go through it later, but numbers sort of play play a big part in this. Mm. Lots of dates, lots of dates, but things took time as mm. well. I think the other misconception I've always had is a lot of this was instantaneous. Yes, that you know, one day he built the ark, the next day the floods happened, and then the next day the floods ceased, and yep, then it was all up. it was all fine and dandy. But th- this was a long time, as we will read later. You know, a year goes past, mm. which is a while. <laughs> 
Especially to be on a boat. Yes, literally a year on a boat. Mm. Now, it said that there would be some translation issues. The word that we see in our text that says cypress wood in the NIV, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Actually, let's start with the first. The word ark there actually literally translates to chest, as in like a treasure chest type situation. And so a literal translation is Noah and the chest rather than Noah's ark. Mm. Um, but anyway, the more important point is that word cypress wood is not found anywhere else in the Hebrew language ever. So the translation of cypress wood is actually an utter guess. Now, one of the best theories I've heard is that there's another language from the same time frame as the Hebrews, and they have a very similar word, and that word means reeds. Oh. Now, if you think about how old this story is, ignoring the fact that Noah's Ark is a giant boat, the only boats they would have been familiar with would have been canoes made out of reeds. Mm. And so potentially what we're reading here is make this huge, ridiculously sized ark out of reeds, which is the only thing that people of that time period would have been making boats out of. Which structurally, a giant boat made out of reeds. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it creates issues. More oh, so yeah. than wood would. Yeah. I mean, if it was if it was reinforced by tar, then great. But yeah, that's a good start. Reeds, though, that's and you know it put adds to that. Well, it's a giant feat in itself. Just if it was out of wood, but out of reeds. Mm. Anyway, so that word doesn't appear anywhere else in the Hebrew language. When the first century Jews of Jesus's time came to translate the Old Testament into Greek. They translated mm. that word as square timber, so mm. they instantly assumed it was some type of wood, but they also didn't know what type of wood, so they just assumed as well. But mm. I think there's a fairly decent case to be made that it's a loan word from Akkadian, which means reeds, mm. which just gives a very different look to Noah's Ark. It does. Like, it's no longer this big square wooden boat. It's this reedy giant canoe. <laughs> canoe, a giant canoe, yeah. And I think that's, like, you know, one of the... Like, as, as we've gone through other... Um, Matthew, and as we're sort of going through through Genesis, just like breaking those preconceived notions of mm. like what it might look like or what it might have actually been, I think is I think is great. You know, it really sort of challenges our mainstream thought process of what this this all could have been. Um, why did God use a flood? Like, why not a big fire or a cyclone like a flood? Yeah, mm. yeah, it's a good question. I think firstly we learn that by bringing a flood, God is sovereign over all of creation. We learn that he can judge the world and use nature to do so. We know that a flood would be an effective way of purging the world. If the purpose of this flood, as is stated in the text, is to wipe out the evil of humanity, then a flood is a really effective way of washing away the evil. But I think the most likely reason why he chose a flood out of every possible thing was that what we see here is almost a perfect parallel to creation itself. And so mm. the very first state of creation, if we remember our first episode, was that it was just a watery mass with the Spirit of God hovering over the watery mass. Mm. And so what God does in this is actually decreation. He returns creation to its original state, which is totally covered by water. Mm. And then he gets to recreate as the water slowly recedes it's almost like a recreation process yeah. of preparing a new world for take two. Mm. And so I think we're meant to look at that metaphor, that analogy of the significance of water in the creation story and see that as the reason why. Yeah. No, it's a beautiful sort of twofold metaphor of like taking that step back of creation, going back on itself and then to the recreation, but then also um, the washing away of, mm. of sins and that that metaphor of of washing it away in the rebirth from it. Mm. Speaking about like the, the flood and the water itself, is there anything in history that sort of, that alludes to this sort of happening outside of the Bible? I was going to delay this conversation ah. to, the, to the end. The very short answer is a crazy amount of ancient societies have flood myths, but there's no geological evidence of a flood of this magnitude. Mm. But I might delay you a little bit more because I think let's get through the story in the text and then let's discuss mm. the historicity of the story. I like it. Let's do it. It's great trust that Noah is having with God um, and shows like Noah's commitment, but also like, you know, faith and following his, his commandment. I mean, it just says like, you know, at the end of, end of chapter six here is like, so Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. Like, especially like there's no... Until the water starts to rise and come from the ground and fall from the sky, there's no real sort of quote-unquote evidence 
that yeah. this is going to happen. And a lot of people could just like dismiss it of, oh, well, you know, whatever, like it's not actually going to happen or this is just some sort of threat or, or whatever. But it shows Noah's great sort of devotion to God in, in following him and trusting that this will happen. Because if Noah didn't, then he's going to get wiped out like just like everyone else. It shows great, great faith. Yeah, definitely. I think that comes back to this idea of Noah being a blameless man. Mm. Like he was the one person, any along with his family, left on earth that was still living the way that God desired and in relationship with Yahweh, mm. which is why they are chosen Yeah, to survive. Yeah, chosen for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. And so all eight of them get into this ark that Noah has built, and then the flood happens. The flood hits, and it rains for 40 days straight. Which I do like this uh, sort of motif of 40, 40 days and 40 nights mm. um, that is throughout the Bible. It's not just sort of in it's just a one place. The whole idea between of, of 40 days and 40 nights is, is a common theme that's starting to come up, uh, we're, we're sort of discovering. <laughs> yes. We love some good biblical numbers, and 40 mm. is definitely one of them, as is seven. Like, <laughs> yeah, we see that in here as well. In verse 21 where it's talking about all the livestock, wild animals and things perishing on earth. I just think why did all the innocent animals have to die when they weren't the ones that were evil? It was like mankind and humans. Like I get he couldn't save all the animals, but I just think it's a bit rough. Like the animals didn't do anything directly. Yeah, fair. Mm. Like I don't know if I have a, any good response <laughs> apart from <laughs> yeah. just like good observation. Just a thought. I just think it's really rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's sort of like, well, maybe it's the consequence of humans that that the consequence of humans have this flow-on effect of affecting other things like animals mm, and, like and the world as, as well than yeah. just, than just you know, our, ourselves. Because, like, yeah, you're, you're quite right. The animals uh, now get thrown into this and they haven't, haven't done anything. Which links in really well with the creation mandate given to humanity mm. of firstly made in God's image to rule over creation and secondly to be stewards of creation. Mm. And mankind has failed at both of them and creation itself suffers because of it. Yeah. And so I think it is really fair to put that all on the evilness of humanity there. Mm. Mm. And I also like in 22 that they use the breath of life in its nostrils like they used in the start of Genesis, Mm. the same language. Yeah, definitely. Which I think is meant to increase the significance of it to us. Like Mm. I think you've picked up something really fair from the text, which is it's trying to labour this point of these were God's creations that he created and brought to life Mm. and now they're being wiped out Mm. so we're meant to feel that yeah no definitely Mm. this would have been such a sort of dramatic time i'm like sort of thinking of like well if this if i was in this situation like how would i be feeling it would just be like you know i think all emotions and everything would be all over the shop because all of a sudden you were living on this earth and then you've been having to you've you've built this boat and then rushed having to rush into the boat and then everything has been flooded Mm. and sort of thinking like what What's life come to? How's this sort of like looking in its like how bleak it is of just like sort of like looking out at the at the ocean and there's nothing nothing there. I mean, I have a like I sort of hate the idea of the open ocean, so that doesn't that doesn't sort of help. But you know, it, it, again through through God, like trusting God, because. You could be out there on the open water, just like is—is is any of this going to change? What's going to happen next? Mm. But it's through through trusting God that you know you will get through this. Not to mention you've got all these animals and everything that you've got to look after. You, um, if you're putting yourself in the shoes of of, of Noah, yeah, and, that's a full time job in and of itself. Yeah, oh, it's yeah, it's a full time job. Like if you if if you put yourself in the shoes of like like Noah and and his wife, you're also looking after the family as well. Yeah. It, would have sort of been a bit crazy. Especially when, when you do the maths, they are on the boat for 377 days. So they enter the ark in what is effectively late April and they exit in early May a year later. I'd hope you, I'd hope you get used to the ocean and not being seasick. And that <laughs> well, would... I mean, the ark's the size of a cruise liner. so True, true. So there'd be a bit of like stabilisation, but I'm just, I'm just imagining sort of walking onto dry land and like having your sea legs. Mm. <laughs> And having to readjust on a slightly different, slightly different note. You keep saying Yahweh. Hmm. Is that because we're sitting in the Old Testament rather than saying God, or is there a specific reason why you're? Saying I've Yahweh? just been trying to slow 
slowly changed my language, to be honest, as like a general comment of, well, I revealed in scripture the name of our God. Mm. And so, yes, I can use his title and keep calling him God. But at the same time, in Exodus, we're told God's very name. And part of me goes, through Jesus, I get to approach the Father, I get to approach God. Mm. Like blameless, without blemish, is what Colossians says, mm-hmm. free of all accusation. And so if, if God is my heavenly father, then why not use his name? No, that's fair. Anyway, it's just like a slow change I'm making in everyday life, not just in the Old Testament right now. Yeah. No, I've just I've just noticed that you've been been doing that. And so and just just quickly, so is it through Jesus that we're allowed to say Yahweh? No, I don't think so. I think God reveals his personal name to his people and they were always allowed to use it. The Pharisees slash the Jewish nation as a whole, they took the commandment to not use the Lord's name in vain very seriously. Mm. And they did the classic thing that we talked about a lot when we looked at Matthew, which is introduced a whole bunch of extra rules to make sure they never broke the one rule. Mm. And so to make sure they never used the Lord's name in vain they made up the extra rule of never say the Lord's name, Mm, mm. which is why when you hit the culture of Jesus, no one would ever have said Yahweh because you would have been stoned to death by the Jewish leaders because they'd created these extra rule. But I don't think that's a biblical standard. That's a cultural standard. Mm. That's fair enough. And something I think to clarify, because I think Mm. a lot of people will be like, but you, you, like, you know, you were stoned for like uttering, uttering that name. So yeah, back in the day, back in the day, you know, doesn't mean that was a right response. No, no, and I think that's just breaking down the misconception. Hmm. I just had like an epiphany thought. If Noah's family was the only, like the original ones left on Earth, does that mean like we're related to Noah? Like we're descendants of Noah? <laughs> that's what I've always said. Whenever anyone's like, "Yeah, we're all related to Adam and Eve," as a kid, I would I would always be like, "Yeah, but like we're also all related to Noah." Mm. Um, now, again, towards the end of the episode, we'll get more into what we <laughs> where we potentially stand on all of that. But yes, uh, on face value. Yes, we're all related to Noah. Where is Adam and Eve? Did they just die? Oh, they're long dead. This is like a thousand years later. Oh, can't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> well, because we give the, you know, before before Noah, we get given that whole like... That huge genealogy. Yeah, of and this Very person lived this long and then died and that, and then they give Noah. Yeah, chapter five. Which... Adam lived 800 years. Sorry, Adam lived a total of 930 years and then died. And this is well past that. Which, speaking of, Noah is now 600 years old. Mm-hmm. Long time to be alive. <laughs> Maybe you needed all of that time just to build this boat. Yeah, I know, right? Five, 500 of those years to build a boat to that scale anyway. Then we sort of roll into chapter eight and we see that God remembered Noah. So here's my mm. question. Did God forget Noah? I don't think he would have forgotten him. I think he just put all his trust in him and left him to it and just felt confident to just let it go for a bit and then came back and remembered, oh, maybe he's doing the right thing. I should probably, like, it's probably time to give him a break, cut him some slack. Yeah, no, I would agree with you, Morgan. I don't think necessarily think it's like a full forgetting or anything. I, I, I When I read that before, I was like, oh, that just must be a linguistic sort of, that's just the way they've written it sort of thing of, just to sort of link, oh, and God will now sort of do this this thing. Hmm. I, I I want to think that God wouldn't forget about Noah. I would like to I'd like to think that that's that's the case. I mean, I'd like to argue theologically, God cannot forget. Yes, just as a starting point. <laughs> but you're absolutely right, Josh. Eight times in the Old Testament, we see this phrase "God remembered," mm-hmm. and every time it means that God is about to take an action for that person. And so mm-hmm. it's less of a oh, God forgot about them, and more of a, here's a marker in the text that God is about to intervene. Yeah. And that's what that phrase means. Yeah, and if we like, sort of put it into sort of like our own context just to sort of help um, our thought process on this, like, well, if someone asks you to do something, you can still remember to do it. It's not mm. like you forgot to do whatever task they asked you to do. Just saying that you remember to do it just further emphasizes the point that you knew what to do. Mm. Reading where the floodwaters start to recede and Noah opens the window, I wanted to know if there's like there's a contrast obviously between a raven and a dove. One's like could be considered not a very nice bird and then one's really peaceful. Like why was that done? Is there meaning behind that? A raven, my understanding, it's argued that the raven can sort of survive because it was a a um like a scavenger start like type type bird and it would also sort of eat the decaying um, bodies and stuff. So it was. It wasn't a good indication of whether or not there was land, because if there was any sort of quote unquote meat on the ocean, um, it could just sort of survive off that and didn't really give an indication of whether or not land was 
land was there where the dove, which was specifically looking for sort of plant life seeds and branches and all that, it bringing back a branch was the clear indication. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be able to survive out on the open water. So it just possibly could just fly around and then come back to the boat. But then once it found land, it then gave, it brought back that fig tree. So I think that's my understanding. I think that's, that's the difference between the two is the raven can survive off water. So it wouldn't, it was, it wouldn't give that clear indication that land was there. That's really interesting. I've never heard that distinction before. I have no answer to your question, Morgan, apart from thinking about other times (laughs) doves are used in the Bible. The most famous example is as a image of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. And so there's something about the dove that kind of brought a bit more hope to the situation of once the dove was released, like they they were sure they were almost out of this situation. Mm. But I, I like Josh's explanation. Who knew that Josh was secretly a bird watcher? <laughs> <laughs> All this knowledge. I think this is the only time I've got bird knowledge. <laughs> and then we see seven more days again, the number seven at the end of that section. Mm. Yep. He waited another seven days. They're not in a rush. Like No. Just being absolutely sure. That, and that's like the, that's the crazy thing. And like what I said before, it's I always think of everything happening instantly. But the water, like even just the water going down mm-hmm. took a long mm. time. 150 days it took for the water to recede. Oh. And then another 70 days for it to dry. Yeah, to dry. Not even like, yeah. It, water goes down and then step out. No, it's to dry it. Everything to dry up for a long time. If everything on Earth was destroyed when the boat had dried and they were able to leave the boat, because they would have nowhere to live, would they have continued living on the ark? Hmm. Great question. With like an open door going in and out? Like where would they live? We have no evidence either way. Yeah. I mean, I assume the, the components of the ark could have been really helpful for starting to rebuild, mm. but who knows? Possibly, possibly. I mean, it's it's something that's written in sort of sci-fi media where a if they were to do a spaceship that's going to go colonize an area they send the spaceship in the in the intent of well that is going to be get deconstructed and in the parts and everything Mm. are going to get used so in a way noah's boat also could get used for for parts and to build a hut um as as well like oh they could have just lived in it yeah Mm. Though, would you want to live in that place after spending after a year, year cooped up? Cooped up, like I think I might want to move, <laughs> find a cave somewhere, and then the ark lands on the mountains of Ararat. Mm. Um, now, it's probably important to point out that there is today a mountain known as Mount Ararat, but here it just refers to a mountain range, which is roughly in modern Armenia, which is where kind of take Turkey and go a little bit east. Yeah. Before starting Chapter 9, I personally had to Google what a covenant was because I didn't know, hadn't seen it before, but it's an agreement for those newbies listening. Mm. Yeah, it's probably important to point out because the Bible, you can almost boil down to a series of covenants. Mm. And this is the first Mm. time we see the word covenant in Scripture, and it's with Noah. Later, we'll see several with Abraham, and then we just keep going forward until we reach the new covenant, which we as Christians are under. Mm. And so these are different agreements mm. God makes. I've never, which is slightly skipping ahead, but it's like I've never thought of like the Ark of the Covenant being the Ark of Agreement. Yeah, I've just always thought of oh, it's the Ark of the Covenant, and that's just a thing. That's just a thing. No, that's sort of opened my eyes. Yeah, and what's really important and special about this covenant with Noah is its kind of universal scope. Mm. Because it says in chapter 9 that this is a covenant that includes every living creature and it is for always, it's perpetual, it's everlasting. And it's also unconditional. Most other covenants that we hit further in the Bible, God will have some conditions from the humans he's talking to to agree to, um, whether it be something as simple as faith. He'll need something from them. But this one is totally unconditional. Does God have a change of heart here about going, I'll never do something as devastating like this again? Or was this sort of like always the plan? We're going to wipe it out and this will be the one time I do a full reset. What does it not matter, you know? I don't like the idea of God having a change of heart in the sense of properly changing his mind because that starts to grade against the normal conception of God. Um, I think what we're meant to see here is it was always the plan to do a big reset with Noah and now he he has his first formal covenant with humanity. Mm. And from Noah, he's going to get Abraham. And from then onwards, you start to see a plan really take shape. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was always part of this plan. Yeah, the whole reset plan. Yeah. Yeah. And he promises never to destroy the world with a flood again. <laughs> so specifically a flood. 
I think so, yes, because okay. we know from the New Testament that when we come to the destruction of the world at the end of time, mm. in 2 Peter chapter 3, it will be via fire. Mm. So all those people that were dropping pamphlets out there saying that the next big flood's coming. Oh, you're wrong. You're wrong. Yeah, absolutely. This covenant <laughs> proves that it was, it was never going to happen. Yeah, every time you see a rainbow... You should know that it is not going to happen, which is really nice that it's the rainbow that is the sign of this covenant as a, a, a reminder to everyone always that whenever you see a rainbow, there's God's promise not to flood the earth again. Mm. It's not to say that this was the first time a rainbow happened. No. Rainbows would have probably been like a consistent thing as it, as it does within our own weather sort of patterns and how that sort of operates. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's now... It's now a symbol that we get to take yes. and go, this is now the agreement, this is now the covenant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess reading this, I just was looking at where it says be fruitful, increase in number and fill the earth. Mm. If it was just one family, like that's a lot of pressure and obviously like gaining population and num- getting bigger numbers of people would be quite slow. Mm. Like it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to delay your question to next episode. <laughs> Oh. And here's why. (laughs) I think the theme of chapter 10, which we're not covering today, is uh, refilling the earth. Like it's the repopulation of the earth is the theme of chapter 10. And so I'm going to delay your question or (laughs) insight or whatever other word we want to use and say, we'll talk about it next week. Promise. All right, well, I have, an, I have another question then. Yeah, You're not going to answer that one. <laughs> In verse 4 of chapter 9, um, but you must not eat meat that has life has its lifeblood still in it. Mm. Does that mean they're vegetarians? That is a great question. So mm. this is the first time in Scripture that God gives permission to humanity to eat meat. Like huh. before this moment, in Genesis, he says, I give you every seed-bearing plant in the early chapters. This is the first time he explicitly says you are allowed to eat meat as long as you drain the blood. Now, we do know that someone like Abel was a keeper of sheep. Like, Mm. we know he was a shepherd. So I think there is an implicit assumption that humans had been doing this anyway. Yeah, that was my thought. But now it's explicit you're allowed to, as long as you drain the blood, which is actually a law that we see repeated several times in other places in the Old Testament. But also, we also see it in the New Testament. Mm. In Acts 15, 29... We see the New Testament church agree that, hey, we don't need all of these new Christians to follow all of the Jewish laws. That's too much of a burden, but they should probably still drain the meat of blood before they eat it. Is that maybe like a like doing it in a humane way, if that makes sense? So like possibly like what we were saying before, people were still eating animals, but it could have been in a non-humane way, but like God's giving permission. Maybe. I think it's more trying to really highlight the significance of blood. Like we read elsewhere in the Bible that there's life in the blood. Mm. Like that, that is that the whole conception of how life works in a biblical worldview is via the blood. Mm. And that will therefore be used for several really important doctrines in Christianity going forward and Judaism going forward. Yeah. And so I think it's just starting to highlight the importance of blood. Yeah, because it's almost, in a way for me, it, it, it's implying that like, well, okay, so drain the lifeblood. Okay, so they're fully, the animal's fully dead. Fully dead, yes. It, it almost implies that they were eating animals that were not fully dead. Yeah, yeah. In a really sort of horrific way. Well, we might leave the rest of chapter nine for next time mm. um, just because we're running short on time and I very, very much want to cover this question of the history city of the flood. Mm. So in other words, is this a real historical event of the entire world being flooded? Interested in your thoughts? On one hand, I go, yes, because this is this is our Bible, this is our book, this is, like, as Christians, this is our history. On the other hand, I'm like, well, I know that the, the, the Bible is written in different styles, so this could be some sort of poetic way of writing, though there's a part of me that doesn't think so, because it's so very specific in what it's saying here. Down um, to dates, yeah. Yeah, down to the dates, measurements of, of the boat and, and everything. Then my brain also goes, well, you know, the Earth did have an ice age and that ice age ended, so mm-hmm. maybe there's some linkage there when, you know, everything melted, um, just like in um, the, the Ice Age movie. Um, <laughs> You know, say, like, oh, is there? You know, is there something there? But yeah, I, I, don't, I, for me, I don't know much, much about like if it sits in history or whether I've, I've seen a couple of YouTube videos. I haven't actually really watched them, but I've seen a couple of YouTube videos that have tried to prove it. Your thoughts, Morgan, on, on that? I don't know. I think big natural disaster, yeah. 
but it just seems very unrealistic. Yeah. I just don't see bad animals and savage animals getting on with these humans for that long on a boat, and I just don't. It just doesn't seem very realistic to me. I mean, we always have to remember that we are reading stories about God here, and so we can mm. sometimes just totally dismiss all claims of realism in in the sense of God can do anything He wants, mm. and if this is what He wanted to happen as an event in human history, every objection we have could be pretty simply solved. Mm. Um, I'm similar to you, Josh, in the sense of I've never put a lot of thought into this story until this past week. Yeah. I was like, I can't come on the podcast as the expert and not have (laughs) well thought out things. But until then, I had never put any time into thinking what was going on here Mm. in an early chapter of Genesis in a story that is so far removed from Jesus, the foundation of my faith, that I just hadn't spent time on it. But let me tell you where I'm currently at Mm -hmm. and... uh, then I've got eight points to walk us through to maybe lead you to the same conclusion. Mm. So here's my view. Um, it's also the same view as John Walton in his book, The Lost World of the Flood. Go have a read of it. If you don't want to read it, then I know John Dixon in his podcast, Undeceptions, had John Walton on as a guest not that long ago. Also mm. worth listening to. Here's the view. The biblical flood story uses hyperbole to picture a local flood as a worldwide flood to communicate an important theological message. Mm. So that's, I think, where I'm sitting right now in terms of my view of the flood. Let me walk through my eight points of leading us maybe to the same conclusion. Point number one, Genesis makes claims about real events in a real past. We talked in our first episode about genre, Mm. and I made the claim that from Genesis 2 onwards, it's very much just a historical recount and... The genre doesn't change between this story of Noah and the story of Abraham mm. too much. Like, it's, it seems to be just giving us history. So mm. point one is Genesis is making claims about history. My second point is that in these chapters, Genesis does depict the flood as a global event. Mm. So I don't think the Christian explanation of it just being a local flood is quite enough because it, it literally says that the water covered the tallest mountain. Mm. There is no local flood in history that got that tall. It also doesn't fit thematically. Like the theme of this section is God was so angry with the sin of humanity, he wanted to wipe them out. There's no point in human history where all of humans lived in one small area that a local flood would have done the job. If it was a local flood, why did the birds need to be on the ark? Because I'm sure they lived further afield than wherever this local flood was happening. I just think when you read this story, we do get the image of a global flood and there's no way around it. So that's point number two. Point number three, geology does not support a worldwide flood and flood stories from around the world do not prove a worldwide flood. Now, floods are so common in the Mm. world that there's a reason why almost every ancient culture has a flood narrative because they're just so common. Mm. But there is no scientific evidence that is convincing enough to show that there was a worldwide flood. Mm. Here's a quote by Stephen O. Moshier. The worldwide scientific community overwhelmingly rejects the geological interpretation of the flood geologists. So those are the people making those YouTube videos that you've seen, Josh, is here's the evidence for the flood. Facebook yesterday literally suggested (laughs) a group to me that was um, the flood was a real event. And I was like, why am I getting this suggested? That's funny. It Um, knows. Yeah. (laughs) There is no convincing scientific case that there was a worldwide flood. In fact, we often see the opposite. So we've got, so so sort of just to, on one hand, the text is explicitly saying this is a worldwide event. Yes. But from a geological, historical, just how the planet works mm-hmm. point of view, it's just impossible for that yes. to happen. Yes. That's where we're currently sitting after my third point. Here's my fourth point. The Bible often uses hyperbole to describe <laughs> historical events. Let's stay in the book of Genesis for a second. Genesis 49 verse 57. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now that that same phrase, all the earth, is used here in the Genesis account of all the earth was covered with water. But do we believe that in the time of Joseph, so about 2000 BC, that Native Americans or Australian Aboriginals in 2000 Mm. BC travelled to Egypt to collect grain to take back to the Americas or take back to Australia because the whole world was in famine. I would suspect that not even people who fight fiercely for the historicity of a global flood would agree on that point. Mm. Um, Joshua 1 to 12 pitches the total and utter annihilation of the Canaanites in the Promised Land. However, the second half of that book pitches Israelite living with Canaanites. Mm. And so again, we see hyperbole. 
Yeah. Even Jesus uses hyperbole when he says the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds because that's not strictly the truth. No. The orchard seed is smaller. And so I think it's fair to say as a literary technique that biblical authors will often use hyperbole. Now... That leads me to my fifth point. Genesis presents a hyperbolic account of the flood. Now, some people may claim that this is lying, but if my wife tries to pick up a bag and says, wow, that weighs a ton, I know she's using hyperbole. It's not a lie in any sense of the word because she's making a point by what she's saying. Mm. Her point is that this is insanely heavy. Why have you packed the bag this way, Lachlan? Um, Mm. In the same way that ancient people potentially recognised that this was a hyperbolic account. And because they recognise the exaggeration going on, it doesn't make it a lie or doesn't make it false. Mm. And so that is what I want to say about point five. Josh Morgan comments as I slowly work (laughs) through these eight points. I think it's like previous things we've talked about with these points you give us. Like, I don't want to overthink it because now I'm (laughs) really overthinking it all. (laughs) Yeah, fair. That's true. And you you also want to get like that full picture for like sort of making a judgment. Yeah. I'll tell you what, let me go through the rest of the points (laughs) and then we'll get your thoughts. Point number six, the flood story has a real local flood behind it. If this is a hyperbolic account, there's still a real flood somewhere. One option given is something Josh mentioned before which is 10,000 BC, which is the end of the last ice age. Mm. That's totally an option. I don't think that lines up with my view of Adam being a Middle Eastern farmer, Mm. but that's an option. We have other ancient accounts of a flood, which happened in about 3000 BC. So the Sumerian king list mentions a big flood taking place in about 3000 BC, but we don't have any evidence of a flood big enough in that time period that would probably be the basis of this type of story. Mm. Um, I think the most compelling case for what local flood might have been the case is presented by William Ryan and Walter Pittman, who are both scientists, and they've suggested in 5600 BC... So you know where the Black Sea currently is? Picture the world map in your mind. Mm -hmm. The Black Sea just above Turkey. That used to be a freshwater lake. Mm. That used to be a smallish freshwater lake. In about 5600 BC, flood waters smashed through basically where Istanbul is today, smashed through there and turned what that saltwater lake was into the Black Sea we know today. Now, that event was devastating. Like any humans that lived near the shore of this previously existing freshwater lake would have been flooded out. Mm. The levels in that area would have risen hugely and that whole area is no longer good, fertile land with a fresh water source nearby. It's now salt water. And so there was this huge geological event in 5600 BC. And it's just close enough to the Middle East to sort of explain mm. what could be the basis for the Noah's story. Um, especially since when you think about where Noah's Ark landed in the Ararat Mountains, it's in that area. Mm. And so I think that is potentially a really, really good option. And if, if you know, if you lived lived there and that's all you knew, yeah, your entire world would be crumbling down. Mm. If not thousands of deaths. Like mm. many, many people would have died when that flood happened and the only way to survive was to go to higher land, but your old place of living was no longer habitable. Mm. Pretty huge event. Here's my point seven. This local flood is intentionally described as a global flood for rhetorical purposes and theological reasons. I'm going to jump straight to point eight from there, which is here's those theological reasons. (laughs) The theological reasons are every story up until this point in Genesis has been showing that humans are sinners, that God judges sinners, but God remains gracious towards his sinful creatures. Like there's this pattern of sin and judgment, but also grace happening. Mm. We also see in this story divine presence, the establishment of order, how order is undermined. We see that the flood narrative points out God's power and freedom over creation, his deadly anger over sin, and also his gracious redemption in light of judgment. The only other point I'll say about theological purposes is just from the Middle East, we have several other flood stories. And by looking at the differences between those flood stories and the one we have in the Bible, we can also see some of the difference, the different theological points that are probably trying to be explained by recording their own version of a flood story. Mm. And this is in all of the other flood stories, there are many gods involved. We have the one Yahweh involved. In the other flood stories, the gods come across as flawed in both their motivations and their actions, whereas Yahweh is perfect. The reason for the flood in these other flood stories is because of the noise of mankind. Like Mm. they're just annoying the gods. But in this (laughs) version, it's because they are evil. Mm. After the flood in both, in all of the flood stories, the hero always offers a sacrifice in 
the pagan flood stories of that same time, the gods are starving because they feed off human sacrifices and it sort of shows their stupidity in wiping humans out, so they kind of swarm the sacrifice. Whereas Noah's sacrifice is the beginning of this brand new covenant. Mm. It's the first moment of this covenant between God and man. Those are my eight points, which hopefully lead up to the main point, which is that I think the biblical flood story uses hyperbole to picture a local flood as a worldwide flood to communicate important theological messages. Whew. Mm. Right, to the table. I've said a lot of words. There's <laughs> a lot to think about there. I think after hearing all of that, like I said before, I'm like overthinking it. But now looking back on it, it's hard to imagine a global flood. Like I didn't really think about the whole world flooding. Like I think I just Mm. thought of it as like just a lake going up. But trying to think about the whole world flooding at one time confuses me after hearing all that. So I'm not really sure where I sit with it, but I don't know. I have no idea. (laughs) Fair. I'm just confused now. (laughs) Josh, your thoughts? All (laughs) right. I know I went through a lot there and very fast. Yeah. It's similar to Morgan sort of saying, you sort of like don't know what to sort of think and it's sort of you're trying not to to overthink it. Um, Because on one hand you're like, yeah, like how does a global flood make sense? Um, But... My initial thoughts was, I don't like it. I don't like it. I, 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 I would prefer to sit in the place of, like, it was a global flood. And that might just be my, like, I don't know, dramatic sort of, like, um, storytelling creative brain of, like, wanting it to be this big, big thing, which I think is fine in my head to, head to be, but also to on the flip side to also think about the... Um, the um the history of it and how it sits in in and our own history and our understanding of how the how the world works. So on one hand, I'm like, I I think I think it's twofold. On one hand, I'm like, oh, I I completely get the story. But on the other hand, it's like I do understand how it how it works in in our world, and it could just be be hyperbole and sort of emphasizing emphasizing a point. And as we've said before, I think the main takeaway is the God resetting. It's the message that's coming out of it, not to get so hung up on was there a global flood, was there, wasn't there, like, mm. and really sort of like getting into the nitty gritty of of that of more just sitting in the place of God's resetting the world. But more importantly, God's giving this new covenant mm. to His people, and that's the real takeaway point. If that makes sense, if you know, if it's if you were sort of you know still struggling on, and that over overthinking of like, okay, well, does this change everything about the story? Like, where do we sit? Do we like how much how much do I now believe of this story? Is like, well, if anything, just take away the God's covenant, God's promise, God's agreement with us, because mm. that's I think the main point. Yeah, yeah. It's an exceptionally important part of the story. Mm. Um, uh, my only encouragement to you is grab a copy of John Walton's book. Yeah. Read it yourself rather than my insanely fast summary that I just went through <laughs> just then because um, I found it quite a convincing read. Yeah. Yeah, no, that'd be quite, that'd be quite interesting to, to, to delve into. And it's something it's something I've never, and I'm sure everyone else has never sort of, and, and Morgan just said, like, I think we just don't question it. Mm. Not that we always should question it um, in saying that, but growing up with it, you're like, yep, flood happened, and we move on to the next story. Like, mm. you know, this is the point of the podcast. It's quite interesting to delve into it and get that better better understanding of it. Mm. And if it was sort of the Black Sea, sort of this is where it happened, yeah, I can understand that everyone living there, this this would have changed their entire life like this would have been world ending for mm. for them and if this was written from those people living there from their perspectives yeah the, the your entire world is ending right there yep absolutely this is definitely one of those things that i hold loosely mm. like i'm trying to my best to figure out what god is teaching in his word um and trying to figure out how that works with all the other sources of information that god gives us and uh, this is where i'm at but yeah definitely holding it loosely <laughs> and focusing on uh, what we learn through Noah as a character. Yes. Because ultimately it is the teaching of the Bible that's inspired, not the event that happened that's mm. inspired. It's showing Noah's character, but also God's character. Yes. I think my takeaway from today is that I had a different perception of what Noah's Ark was in the story. Like I said before, I thought it was really hopeful and like a, a nicer story than what it was. So I've just been shocked by how like yeah how dire it was and what it would, would have actually been like. 
And I also didn't realise that it was just Noah's family at the time. I thought there was a lot more people before I'd read this. I just assumed it was like God saved all the good people, not just Noah's family. So that's probably my takeaway. According to the text, Noah's family was all the good people. Yeah, but just like the amount of people, I just, I'd always thought it was a lot more people on the boat than just them. Mm. Mm. So I think like my takeaways from other bits that we read, just to not have these perceptions before actually looking into it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. My takeaway from the text has been said multiple times throughout this episode, which is that the flood was God's anger at sin. Mm. And I don't think we as Christians here today in the 21st century take sin seriously enough. Mm. I think we sin all the time and we're like, what? there was no negative consequences I can see from that. Mm. But sin is sort of like firing a gun into a dark room. You can't see the damage you're doing, but God can see it and he hates the damage that you're doing. Mm. And so I'm just really walking away with the message of God hates sin. He will judge it. And like, look at the lengths he went to to judge it here. Mm. Definitely. Which is, yeah, quite a a negative takeaway point. (laughs) But I think that's like, it's a negative story. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not a pretty story, but it's something important to to remember. Mm. Um, like what we said of like the preconceived notions of like everything being airy fairy and nice. It's like, well, sin isn't. No. And committing it isn't as well. And we should heed the warnings and follow through with not committing any sins because we know what the consequences are. Mm. If we have the examples all laid out for us. The flip side for my takeaway is to to what you're saying, Lucky, is again as it was similar last week, but again, is God's mercy in all this as well. God could have just swept Noah up on all of this and went, this is the clean slate, but he still was able to give mercy to those devoted to him, to to the quote-unquote good, you know, people, people here. He saved Noah and his family for being those committed followers for walking in fellowship with God. And then, as we see at the end of the story, the the agreement and the covenant that God gives, God shows his mercy there as well. Mm. And it's I think it's just nice to see that God, that there is consequences with God and he will, he will take those actions, mm. but he will reward you with his mercy as well. So for everyone at home, for when this gets released, uh, it will just be right before Easter, mm. right before Good Friday, right before Easter, which is a significant event in our Christian calendar. It is, I think, probably the event. It's the reason. It's <laughs> yes. the reason why uh, our our faith is is alive. Um, mm. So, if you haven't listened to it already, go back to our Matthew series. Then uh, that's where we cover uh, the the Easter story, the Good Friday story. We we cover. Uh, Jesus's death and Jesus's resurrection um, and him taking the sins for us and everything there. So um, I wish everyone a, um, a happy Easter, whatever you're, you're doing. And if you're interested into knowing more about the Easter story, go back to, back to Matthew and uh, discover it there. Like always, make sure you keep up to date with our social medias, Facebook, Instagram, um, we post, uh, well, we try to post regularly there. Forgive us if we, we're not uh, always uh, regularly posting, but we'll post updates uh, there. And we've got a Patreon. So if you want to support us, as we've said each week, if you want to support us financially, um, follow us on Patreon. You get uh, a couple of uh, different exclusive things, extra long uh, episodes and uh, parts of podcasts that we've cut out that we've just can't fit in the full episode so that we're going to put them in as a uh, separate thing. You'll find them on Patreon. So follow, uh, just go to the link tree to uh, get more details and if you want to support us on Patreon there. If you're listening to the podcast and you want to see our lovely faces, then you can go ahead on to YouTube and you can see uh, the video format of the podcast. But if you're watching us on YouTube, and you just want to listen to us, then this podcast can be uh, consumed on any podcast platform of your choice. Um, I'll just jump in there, Josh, because I was chatting to a friend at church who Mm. exclusively listens to us as a podcast, but went and subscribed to us on YouTube because that actually really helps us. And so if you are just a podcast listener, please still jump on YouTube and subscribe. That is actually really helpful for us as we continue trying to get this podcast out there. It is, and, and further further to that, um, share it with a friend. Um, share this podcast around. We want you to be able to 
see it grow and if there's someone out there that you think might benefit, share it with, with them. And leave, leave a comment, leave a review, send us a message. We'd love to see your thoughts. We'd love to know your thoughts on, on, on Noah and what you've mm. got, a, got from the story um, and what you think about was it a global flood, wasn't it a global flood. Send in your thoughts. Uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to hear it. Lockie, can you just end with a word of prayer for us? Absolutely. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Uh, we thank you that that has always been in your character. We even see your grace and mercy in saving Noah uh, from your just judgment. And so the, I pray as we continue going forward from this moment that we'll co- all continue reading and trying to truly understand your word and seeing your good character come through it all. Pray that in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. Lockie and Morgan, thank you. And we'll see everyone next week. Bye. 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 A Mustard Seed Creative Production.